The continuing resolution, which lasts until November 17th, takes a six-and-a-half-week bite out of fiscal 2024's calendar. In a sense, it resets the countdown to a government shutdown. Contractors have been sorting out what this all means. We get an update from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, golly, last week we thought we would be talking about something totally different. Everyone thought this train wreck was going to happen. Can you derail a train wreck? I guess that's what they succeeded in doing. (laughs) It sounds that way, although, you know, the train wreck is still a potential, right? At the end of the day, this is a continuing resolution. It is not a set of 12 full-year appropriations bills, and that's what the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023 passed earlier this year requires. You know, if we don't get all 12 full-year appropriations acts passed and signed into law by the president by January 1st, the word we haven't talked of, or, you know, it's kind of the Voldemort of federal funding, right, of that of which should not be spoken, sequestration happens early next year if they don't pass all 12 bills. And a 1% haircut across all federal programs will happen. So we're watching at PSC very closely what Congress is doing on those 12 full-year appropriations bills and advising our member companies of what they need to watch out for as well. Yeah. And so for companies that are doing business with the government or hope to, it's really hard to tell what this all means. I mean, we have a CR now. And so people that had bids out for awards for new programs, that's still on hold, right? Right. We're still under the typical continuing resolution restrictions of no new starts, et cetera. Now, what's good is, you know, we're continuing FY23 funding levels, which for some agencies is better than they would have gotten under the Fiscal Responsibility Act. That said, that specter of shutdown looms again come November 17th. And, you know, as we watch what's going on in the House and to some extent in the Senate, wondering whether or not appropriations bills can be passed and we'll be facing another short-term CR come mid-November. And agencies can always impose stop work orders if they feel they don't have the money. And that could really hit very suddenly and be a kind of unpleasant surprise. Tom, I'm glad you raised that because when we think about a shutdown or a lapse in appropriations, it's oftentimes the contractors who bear the brunt of those actions. You know, without funding, contracts are subject to stop work orders. And my concern lately has been really focused on the smaller companies that don't have the operating funds. They don't have access to lines of credit. You know, they may well have to furlough or lay off some of their critical employees. And in this tight job market, it'd be tough to get those folks back working on a government contract when funding is restored. So we are looking at a perfect storm of workforce shortages, funding shortages, and a lot of inconsistency and uncertainty on the congressional front. So this is an area where PSC is tracking a lot very, very closely. And if you look at that potential 1% sequestration reduction, that could be magnified for contracting activities because if agencies don't lay anybody off and the federal workforce stays the same size, plus it gets a 5 or something percent pay raise, as it's expected to do come January 1st, well, then that means it's really not a 1% across the board. It's 1% in total, but it's going to be unevenly distributed, and contracting might take more than a 1% hit. That's exactly right. When you look at what the government spends money on, it spends money on military personnel, civilian personnel, contracts, and what's discretionary in all of this will be the contracts. There's not going to be a a massive reduction in force come January 1, 2024, if 12 appropriations bills aren't passed. And so we are tracking very closely what the intent is here. One issue that also came to the fore because we got so close to a shutdown 
a lot of the departments and agencies, the vast majority of the large ones, submitted and, and had posted to the White House website their contingency plans for shutdowns. They talked a lot about designating individuals who work for the government who are exempt from furlough or who we would call colloquially essential personnel. There was very little discussion of that we could see publicly of what they would do with contracts. And so going forward, PSC is going to remain vigilant on making sure that the departments and agencies talk to their contracting officers, who then in turn talk to contractors, because this situation of uncertainty, again, I referenced this perfect storm of a tight workforce and potential lack of funding, really, really puts government contractors back on their heels. Yeah, it's a great partnership, as they like to say, until the squeeze is on, then you see who's the senior partner. <laughs> We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And there's another practical matter that has come to light, and that is the expiration of waivers for Section 889. Now, that's the provision in one of the NDAAs of recent years, which prohibited use of Chinese-made telecommunications equipment in federal contracts and federal systems. But waivers were possible under 889, I guess, if you had to have it. Now those waivers could expire, and that's causing some problems. It is, Tom, and I'm glad that you raised this because it is coming to a head in recent months. That is to say, 889, which is a bugaboo for some folks in terms of they react very viscerally to, to hearing those numbers and that combination, really does restrict the government on entering into extending or renewing contracts that have in any way, shape, or form a significant reliance on companies like Huawei and others, Chinese telecoms companies, as you mentioned. The Department of Defense and other agencies did have waiver authority, but key departments and agencies did not have waiver authority. And these are things like the General Services Administration, which manages a multiple award schedule program, and it didn't offer such a waiver. So the question then becomes, you know, can GSA accept another agency's waiver when that agency is the customer? A few weeks ago, GSA officials started to alert entities who hold these programs that there's no available pathway to a waiver so that they were going to start canceling contracts. This has sent quite a chill through the community of contractors, as you can imagine, because in some countries, there is no Verizon. There is no, uh, I almost said MCI, but that's dating me. Huawei is really the only game in town if you want to be connected to the internet. And so it, it's not just about equipment, it's about services and support and systems. And there are countries where they have a Chinese backbone and we provide U.S. assistance. And so this is really putting a squeeze on those companies who work in these regions of the world. All right. So what is the prospect? And if the waivers expire, are you seeing the cancellation of contracts? We are seeing the notices to cancel contracts, usually about 30 days out. The companies are getting these notices. We have raised this issue with GSA. We will continue to raise it that if that company does hold a waiver from another agency, GSA uh, should consider accepting it. There should be some reciprocity because that company has already gone through the disclosure requirements to get that waiver. So as we move forward, we're going to encourage sort of common sense approach to, you know, take Ethiopia, for example, you're not going to find a U.S. provider there of telecoms. You'll find Chinese. And so if we're going to work with the Ethiopians in exercises in assistance programs, we're going to have to make an exception in that case. So that affects the Defense Department, potentially. It also affects agencies like the State Department, USAID, and a, really a bunch of them that operate programs in, in distant nations. That's exactly right. And they are also the users of these GSA multiple award schedules. And so as we move forward, we're going to have to work not just with GSA, 
but with the other agencies to make sure they're aware of this issue. And we're all sort of rowing in the same direction on this. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Never a dull moment. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.